In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you. And in light of Drew's cajoling of you, I expect you to lean forward at this point and start laughing and see some vicious note-taking this morning. Um, we are in the book of First Kings, and so uh, as we've been going through the Old Testament, we've seen that really the goal of history and redemption is God with us. That's the goal of everything, is God with us. And, and if that's the goal, then that implies that there's some level of separation between God and us. There is some separation. The Bible's clear that, that man is separated from God because of sin, because uh, we haven't done uh, what God has called us to do. Isaiah says your iniquities, that is your sins, the things you've done wrong against God, have made a separation between you and your God. And, and, and this was in the context of Israel being sent into exile, but it was a picture of humanity's spiritual separation from God. We've seen that with Adam and Eve, right? Uh, They were sent out of the Garden of Eden where God was. God walked among them there. They were sent out of his presence, and the Bible also tells us that Adam was the representative of all of humanity. So, So we too were sent out of God's dwelling place. So the major story of the Bible is how can God and man be together again? What, what do we do with the sin problem, the barriers that exist between us and him so that we can be connected again to the one true source of life? And ever since then, we've tried everything under the sun in an, in an attempt to close the gap, right? To find meaning, importance, worth, to feel loved, right? Money, we've tried that. We've tried reputation. We've tried relationships, all kinds of things. But if we're honest, over time, those things never satisfy us deeply because they weren't made to do that 
But that just frustrates us worse and makes us more miserable because we keep running to those things, thinking that'll meet that deep need and close that separation. So, so the problem underneath all of our problems is that we need to be back with God because we were, we were made to be with him. But you see, when man couldn't come back into the Garden of Eden where God's presence was, if you remember, there was this huge flaming sword that, that, that kept, kept man out, so implying that it would kill them if they tried to get back in. Later, Israel couldn't even touch the mountain when God came and met with Moses uh, on top of Mount Sinai in the wilderness. They couldn't even touch the mountain or they would be killed. They couldn't enter the most holy place in the temple where God's presence was uh, without being killed. Only the high priest could do that, and he could only do that once a year, and he had to kill animals and stuff to even go do that. So this all screams separation or barriers between God and man. And really what it, what it means is spiritual death, disconnected from the one true source of life. The Bible shows us that that's what happens when a holy, perfect God and just God, who can do no other because his character uh, makes him do that, and sinful, rebellious man meet, that they cannot exist together. Right? So, so the priests and the sacrifices throughout the Old Testament, they show us that we need a, me- a mediator. We need someone to meet with God for us. We need a middleman. And also, we need atonement. And what that word means is really forgiveness of our sins. We need the wrongs that we've committed made right. And the Bible's very clear that blood is the price for that. That's what the animals and the sacrifices were, were all about. So really, the Bible's screaming at us a, a problem of separation. Now, if we fast forward and we look at the end of the Bible, we see a totally different picture. Uh, in, the, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, John is writing this, and he's having a vision of the new heavens and new earth. And there's this verse in Revelation 21 that says this. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Three times in one verse, John says that God will be with his people. This is great, right? That's the blessing. You see, that's the goal of history, where there are no barriers between God and man. There's no gap. So at the beginning, we see the problem of separation. And then we see the final picture of God and man dwelling together in the end. That's the big picture. So the question is, what removes the barriers? What removes the gap? Now, if we read on in Revelation 21, John keeps reporting about what he sees. And he mentions something very interesting. Uh, He writes that there is no temple in this everlasting city. No temple. He says, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, my question is, why does he mention a temple? I mean, that has not been mentioned yet, as he's seeing this vision. But apparently it was on his mind because usually in the Bible, when someone has a vision, they comment on things that they actually see, right? I mean, it's like when we report on something. We report, if we're giving a report, we report on what we see. And can can you imagine uh, the 6 o'clock news tonight where the anchor comes on and says, uh, well, here's what didn't happen today in central Florida. There were no fires. There were no earthquakes. There were no hurricanes. Uh, I mean, that may be a nice change for us. Maybe we would like a news uh, report like that. Um, but no, that's, that's not what you do. You, you, for you to mention something that you don't see in a reporting situation, it has to be that there's something pretty significant missing. 
And John does that here. It's almost like he's startled that he doesn't see a temple. It's like he expected to see one. And then he goes, all of a sudden he goes, I don't, I don't see a temple here. And this is significant. And it's just that, this, this idea of the temple, the, the, the problem of sep- separation between God and man, and how they can be together again that we're going to look at today. And so in your worship folder, if you'll follow along, I have three points. Uh, the temple, something greater than the temple, and then finally, you are that temple. Now, in the book of 1 Kings, uh, the author devotes three entire chapters to the construction of the temple. Uh, we, could, we could spend hours digging into the details of the temple alone, but I would like to, to look more broadly, uh, just to bring out a few important things in this first point. So, uh, these chapters make very clear that the construction of the temple was quite a feat. Uh, in chapter 5, we see Solomon networking. Okay, remember last week we found out that Solomon was very wise, that it was his job to build uh, God's temple, a dwelling place. And so in chapter 5, you see him, I mean, in today's terms, you really see Solomon like checking his email, checking his cell phone, returning texts. He's having lunch meetings with guys. He meets a guy. He gets like uh, the best lumber around. He works out transportation plans to get that stuff down there. I mean, he's, he's working it all out. So it's the planning and the, the prep for the temple construction in chapter 5. And then in chapters 6 and 7, they deal with the construction and the details of the temple. And, and I'm just going to tell you, they can make for tough reading. Because you're dealing with length uh, in cubits. I have no idea what a, what a cubit is, but apparently it's some measure of length. Okay, uh, And there's all this other architectural lingo. So unless you're passionate about building, these are probably some of the toughest chapters in the Bible to read next to maybe the, the genealogy lists and stuff. Uh, y'all looking at me like y'all read that really slowly and intensely, but I know you scan over it. Um, But we do believe that all of Scripture is inspired by God, that it's profitable for us. We believe that the author was really trying to communicate something important here. I mean, to include all this, he he really stops and he camps out on the details of the temple. So so what is he trying to accomplish by telling us all these details? Just a couple things quickly. One is the author is trying to communicate the splendor of God. He really camps out on how magnificent the temple is. And, and really what he's trying to tell us is the surpassing worth and beauty of the Lord himself. I mean, in just the span of a few verses, in chapter 6, the, the, the word gold is used ten times. It tells us that these huge, costly stones are brought in and they're covered with the finest of wood. And then they just like cover everything with gold. And the walls and the doors have very intricate, detailed carvings that tell a story. And the whole place is filled with costly vessels. The whole thing just glittered and shone of value and worth. I mean, even the floors in this place are covered with gold. This is the true king's dwelling place. And if you really do slow down and read it, it really leaves the the reader with a sense of awe and, and wonder. The author's telling us about the glory and the beauty and the worth of God. And also, he's trying to take us on an audio tour of the temple. You know, when you go on tours, you put the little headphones on and everything, and it tells you about it. Because not just anyone could go in the temple. Actually, the majority of people couldn't go in the temple, right? You couldn't just wake up and have a little family day and go to the little village Home Depot and say, ah, for a small donation, we'll go take a tour of the temple and, you know, have a nice little, little day. Like we do with churches these days, pretty churches. You get, put a little donation in, you just go in, take pictures and stuff. You couldn't do that. Only the high priest could go in the most holy place uh, one time a year. So the majority of people never got to go in the temple. So he's really just giving us pictures of what it was really like on the inside. So 
So that's what the details of the temple communicate. But in the big picture, what we want to look at, what's the temple all about? What is its purpose? What problem is the temple trying to solve? And and the temple's main purpose, listen, was to serve as a bridge to close the gap between holy God and sinful man. It was a bridge. You see, in most all religions, the purpose of, of a temple is for it to be a place to bridge the gap between the divine being and humans. It's a place where you can reach God. The separation between God and man is the problem that the temple is trying to solve. So that's great, right? Uh, It's a place to close the gap. But even then, it's full of barriers. The temple's full of barriers, right? Uh, Not just anyone could go in there, I told you, only the priests. They had to go through a huge process. They had to, 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 to make sacrifices, shed blood. They had to really meticulously clean themselves in these big basins of water that sat outside. They had to wear special garments. They had to do all these things to meet with God. I mean, the temple is like the ultimate obstacle course. You know, there's these races these days that are like 13 miles, and there's mud, and there's big gaps and walls, and, and all these different things you've got to get through. The temple's like that, but it's just impossible to get through it. Uh, only certain people and very rarely could. So although it was a place to bridge the gap to a certain degree, it was, it was still full of things that kept people away from being directly with God. See, you couldn't meet God any way you liked. You, you could only do it on his terms. There had to be priests. Blood had to be shed. Uh, justice had to be served to close the gap. Sin had to be dealt with. So the temple helped do this, and in this way, God was with his people to a greater degree. So after all the architectural details of the temple I told you about, the chapters go on to tell us how the people were to live if God was to be with them. Okay, there were conditions in a sense. In chapter 6, verse 12, the Lord says that he will be with them if they walk in his statutes, obey his rules, and keep all of his commandments. And then in chapter 9, we see the flip side of that. He says, if you and the people don't obey, then I'm going to leave, you'll be punished, and the temple will be destroyed. It's very clear. So there must be obedience to the Lord by the king and the people if they're going to enjoy the blessings of his presence. They must approach him in the ways that he commanded. So if we keep reading, it's chapters 5, 6, and 7. In chapter 8, Solomon dedicates the temple to the Lord. Right? This is the moment where you get the big scissors and there's the big red ribbon and you smile and you cut the ribbon and everyone smiles, right, at the building dedication ceremony. Uh, This one was a little bit different. They, like, slaughtered over 100,000 animals. Kind of put a damper on the day, I imagine, right? Uh, I mean, literally, I'm not making that number up. Over 100,000 animals, the Scripture tells us, were sacrificed. And uh, the presence of God comes in the form of a cloud and fills the temple. Can you imagine that? The presence of God comes in the form of a cloud. It fills the temple so much so that the, that the priests just start falling over, right? I mean, it's, kind of, it's really good, but it's probably pretty chaotic. The priests are falling over. They're running out of the temple. God's filling this thing up. It is one of the most beautiful and biggest moments uh, of the Old Testament. It's a moment of fulfillment, right? God had brought his people to their promised land, and God had settled with them. This is a huge moment, and they lived happily ever after. No. Y'all already started laughing. The people don't obey. They don't approach God on his terms. They decide we're going to live by our own terms, right after he told them not to. If we fast forward very quickly, we find out that things don't go well at all. 
Listen, within one generation, the kingdom is divided. Solomon's sons got beef and they split. And you get, you get Judah and Israel. Within one generation, the people have left the faith. And within 500 years, both kingdoms have been conquered, taken into exile, and the temple is destroyed. After all that, it's all over. The prophet Ezekiel tells us how the people continued to sin and they rebelled and God left the temple. Just as he had entered on that great dedication day, he left. And the temple doesn't last. It's sad. All hope seems to be lost. We can relate to living on our own terms, right? I mean, we live in a time of radical individualism that says, I can do what I want and I can do it how I want. So, for example, if if I want to meet with my friend in every way that I want, I can do that. And if he doesn't want to meet with me in the way that I wanted, then I can get upset because I didn't get my way. We approach God in the same way. We want to meet with God in any way we want, but the truth is we can't. There are barriers between us and God. God says, because of your sin, you've been separated from me. And you can't just meet with me however you want. You have to do it on my terms, not not your terms. And he essentially, that's what he told Israel. I mean, we can't just show up and push our way in and approach God on our own terms. The sacrifices, the blood, the cleansing, uh, the, the priests, all of the barriers in the temple show us that you can't just show up. And, and we can somewhat relate to this. I mean, think about it. You can't meet the president on your own terms. You can't just show up and walk in his office and sit down and say, what's up? I mean, they're, they're, they're going to lock you up if you do that. You can't just walk in the cockpit of an airplane, right? You've got to have special clearance to get in there. You can't do that on your own terms. Or think about yourself. I mean, how would you feel if a friend said, hey, I, w- I want to meet with you tonight. And you say, well, you know what, I-, I can't really do that. I've got a lot of stuff going on tonight, so that's not going to work. And then they just show up at your door and push their way in anyway. That's not cool, right? Or at least you all know how I feel about that. Don't, don't come do that at my house, right? They just push their way. I mean, I thought I told you I got stuff going on tonight, but all right. Come on in. Want a drink? You know, whatever. Or just, Y'all do the same thing, right? Some of y'all might just say, go home. I told you earlier. We ain't doing this. Uh, or to take it even further, what about somebody breaking into your house? How does that make you feel? They show up on their own terms. You feel violated. You feel threatened when that happens. If we're sinful, how do you think God, who is perfect and holy, feels when we approach him on our own terms? He has terms on which he can be met. We can't meet him in any way we want, and that's what the temple shows us, that our pushy, have-it-our-own-way, radical individualism will not work. But that's the opposite of what we're told, isn't it? And the world tells us that everything's okay. And the same thing was happening in this day. Uh, If you've been reading... Uh, In our community Bible reading, we just read recently where the prophet Jeremiah was telling the people that because of their sin, God's judgment was coming. And listen, this is what he said. He said there was a bunch of false prophets running around telling everybody, hey, don't listen to Jeremiah. He's crazy. Everything's all good. Speaking about them, this is what Jeremiah said. He said, they have healed the wound of my people lightly by saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Can I just tell you that the same thing is happening today? We're told that it's all good. 
we're told that there are no barriers, that we're not separated from God, that we can just walk right up to whatever divine being the world, you know, defines now and then. We can just walk right up to it because we're qualified and worthy by ourselves, that we're really not guilty. We're really not separated from any true source of life because that would be, you know, judgmental or something like that because of the lack of belief in absolute truth. We're told to just look inside yourself, find yourself, try harder or don't try at all, but at the end of the day, it's all going to be okay. But the Bible says no. There are barriers between you and God that you can't take care of yourself. Because if we're honest, listen, we haven't walked in his statutes, the same thing that he told Israel. We, we, we haven't obeyed his rules. We haven't kept, kept his commandments. We've rebelled. We've gone our own way. We've attempted to do life apart from the only true source of life. And in that, God says we're due justice because we were made for him. And he can do no other but give justice because he's a good God. If he didn't give justice, he wouldn't be good. So the Bible says it's not all good. But we've become numb to that because we've lived a lifetime of sin apart from God. We've taken in what the world has told us about this false peace. But contrary to how we feel and and what we're told by the world, everything's not okay. That's the driving point of this book, of this story, is that everything's not okay. That life apart from God is a total contradiction because there is no life apart from him. That's the bad news. So given our state apart from God, with barriers in between us and him, And knowing that we can't just show up on our own terms without receiving justice. Here's the question. The question is, how can we approach God and live? What are his terms? How can we be with him? What I told you the Bible's goal is. You see, the temple that we're talking about, it did accomplish its purpose. The primary purpose of the temple was to forecast God being fully with his people. It was a shadow. It had a purpose, right? The barriers at the temple were never removed before it was destroyed. They were always there. The sacrifices went on day after day. There was never an end to the blood of animals just being continually shed. The cleansings, right, cleaning off, they went on day after day. When one priest died, we raised up another. There was one priest after another, after another. It was never enough. There was still the gap. None of those things ultimately, at the end of the day, closed the gap. But that's because the temple and the sacrifices were a big arrow pointing to something greater. And after I told you about how God departed from the temple, he left them. Uh, In Ezekiel, he made promises that he was coming back that he would come back uh, in a greater way to be with his people. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says something very interesting uh, to the people. He said, referring to himself, he said, something greater than the temple is here. If you remember last week, he said the same thing about Solomon. He said, something greater than Solomon is here. It seems like Jesus is saying, hey, listen, all the stuff in the Old Testament that didn't live up to to its expectations, like Solomon, like the temple, like David, like Adam. Yeah, that, that was on purpose. They all pointed to something, someone, uh, someone greater, and I'm it. Same thing goes for the temple. He said, something greater than the temple is here. He said that he was the true temple, and he said that he was greater than the temple. And what he means is two things, really. He said, one, I'm the true dwelling place of God. John 1 tells us that he dwelt 
among us. And the Greek word there for dwell is tabernacled. Skene in the Greek. It means tabernacled. It means Jesus is God setting up his tent in the flesh among us. This is the temple in a person. The book of Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. They even called him Emmanuel, God with us. That was the goal, right? So, so Jesus saying that he is the temple and greater than the temple, one is he's saying, I'm the true dwelling place of God. But secondly, and possibly more importantly, he's saying, I'm the true bridge between God and man. Remember, that was the purpose of the temple, to be a bridge between the divine and sinful humanity. But he's saying, I'm the true bridge. He's saying, in saying that he's the true temple, he's saying he really bridges the gap and destroys the barriers between God and man. John chapter 2 tells us that Jesus said his body was a temple and that it would be destroyed and he'd raise it up in three days. And ultimately what he's saying is, listen, he's saying, I'm not like other temples. I'm not like other temples. He's saying, in every other temple, you have to bridge the gap. You have to bring sacrifices. You have to get priests and mediators and and middlemen. You have to clean yourself up day after day and it's never enough. You have to do all this stuff. But in my temple, I do those things for you. I'm the one who bridges the gap for you. I am the terms on which you can approach God. I am the way. So he's saying, in my death, I'm the true sacrifice for forgiveness of sins once and for all. I'm better than the blood of animals. Those blood of animals went on and on and on. They couldn't atone. I'm the true sacrifice. I'm the true priest who intercedes for you. I'm the one who never dies. I'll always intercede for you. Those basins of water that the priests had to clean off in, he's saying, I'm the true basin of water who cleanses you from all of your impurities once and for all. In the temple, there was this table that there was bread on to show God's provision. It was called the bread of the presence. He's saying, I'm the true bread of the presence right here before us. He said, I'm the one who fully satisfies you. He's saying, I'm the true lampstand. In the temple, there were ten lampstands, and they lit up the darkness in the temple. He's the true light that dispels the darkness of sin and death. You see, it all points to him. All of it. He's greater than the temple in every way. He's everything that the temple tried to be and tried to do but couldn't because it wasn't ultimately meant to. It all pointed to him. Hebrews gets all over this. Hebrews says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God to show that it was finished. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting Psalm 22, that he was fulfilling uh, that prophecy. So just as God left the temple in the Old Testament because the land was polluted with sin, God left Jesus on the cross because he became full of our sin. He was forsaken, abandoned. He was taken into the exile of death for us. Our curse, what we deserved on his shoulders. So through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus destroyed the barriers that stood between us and God once and for all. So much so, listen, that the New Testament says things like this. It says, come boldly to the throne of grace. 
It says, draw near with confidence. That type of talk would get you killed in the Old Testament. Just running up in there, coming boldly, drawing near with confidence. But through Jesus, the barriers are removed, and we can come to God, our Father. We can, we can run to our Father. He essentially walked right up to the temple curtain that separated the presence of God from everything else, and he tore it from top to bottom. And that's what really happened when he died. What do you think that signified? Access to the, fa- to the Father. Barriers removed. Jesus saying, come home, I've made a way. You see, there's no other way to deal with the separation between us and God. You, you can't build a bridge over it with your good works. You hear that? All of the barriers and the separation between you and God, you can't be good enough to close that gap. In fact, the Bible says that doing good works in order to get over the barriers is a barrier in itself. Us thinking that our good works can bring us to God is itself a barrier between us and God. God says, no, works, works don't work. And neither can we ignore the separation that exists between us and God. Like, like most of the world, I really believe that a lot of the world just puts their fingers in their ears and goes, la, 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 it's all okay, it's all okay, everything's fine, it'll all work out in the end. That's not a very wise approach to this situation. We will either meet God on his terms through his son, Jesus Christ, who made a way for us, who removed the barriers by his blood, and God will be with us. Or we will meet God on our terms. And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Meaning that person will spend eternity in hell, which is a permanence. It's merely a permanence of the separation from God at its fullest degree. Eternal separation from God, which means separation from all of life, from all peace, all fulfillment, all happiness, because God is the only true source of all of those things. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved by faith. You can't, you can't work and solve it. You can't ignore it. That's not going to take care of it. Believing in Jesus Christ, that's how the barriers between you and God will be removed. Now, after Jesus ascended into heaven, he said he would begin to build a new temple. And, and I want to know, what, is, what does he mean by that? He will build a new temple. Well, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian church, listen, This was the most hard-headed, crazy, messed up, dysfunctional church in the New Testament. Okay? They're a mess. He's writing to them. And right after, listen, right after he addresses their spiritual immaturity and the divisions that exist within the church, he's just saying, you guys are just messed up. This is what he says. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He tells this messed up ragtag group, they're the temple of God. And I think that shows us four things. As as the people of God, being the temple of God, we have his presence, his peace, his purpose, and his power. If if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have the presence of God. Uh, When Jesus spoke to his disciples the night before he died, he told them, he said, you know what, it's better for you if I go away because if I go away, I'll send my spirit to live in you and in that way I will be fully with you, even in a greater way than I am now. You see, in all other religions, you have to go to be with the God. You have to build him a house or you have to do things in order to meet with him, but not this God. He says, I'm coming to be with you. As a matter of fact, I'm coming to be in you. Who's heard of a God like that? 
I'm coming to be in you. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That's a big deal, right? (laughs) Sounds pretty powerful. Same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And the Greek word for dwells there means house. It means he set up his house in us. We are the dwelling place of God. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus has inaugurated a new age where people can worship God in every place. They don't have to go to a specific location because the Holy Spirit dwells in them. So you can go, listen, walk the streets of Jerusalem. You can go see the Temple Mount. You can walk through the Garden of Gethsemane. You can go float in the Dead Sea. It may be an awesome experience, but I tell you that God is no more with you there than he is when you're sitting on the couch or you're sitting in here right now. That's good news. Because I don't have the money to go to Israel as it is. Uh, It may be cool, but God is in us. God's people everywhere are the new temple where God dwells fully. The New Testament tells us in 1 Peter, we read it in our assurance of pardon, that we are living stones. We're living stones being built into a spiritual temple. A living, moving, growing temple built upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. So listen, the fact that we, as God's people, are his temple means that we have his presence in us fully. Not only do we have his presence, but we have his peace, not pressure. Why? Because we know that God dwelling with us is by grace. Because again, if there was ever, we know this from Paul writing to the Corinthians, if there was ever a messed up group that couldn't earn God coming to dwell in them, it was the Corinthians. There's some nasty stuff going down there. Go read it. And Paul says, you're the temple of God. He dwells in you. That means that even on our worst days, if we are in Christ, we have God dwelling in us and he is with us. And this promise is our hope and peace. It's my hope and peace that that being cleansed by his blood and receiving his spirit, he's with us. And listen, his being with us doesn't depend on us. Do you see that? His his being with you isn't uh, contingent upon um, you. There's no pressure to perform. You can't earn his being with you. That means he's just as with you when you fail as he is when you succeed. Just as much. He's just as with you when you weep as he is when you rejoice. He's just as with us when we mess it all up as he is when we do it all right. He's just as with you when you've been a horrible parent as he is when you've been the perfect parent. I can say amen to that. Y'all are some better parents than I am. That's amen. This means he's, he's just as with you when you've lost all hope and you feel empty and you even doubt his own goodness. He's just as with you then as when you're on spiritual peaks and spiritual highs when everything's good. You see, that's the beauty of the gospel. That him being with us doesn't depend on us, but on his unchanging grace rooted in Jesus Christ. And that is good news for fickle, double-minded, unsteady people. Who's heard of a God like that? That it doesn't depend on you. It depends on what I've done for you, rooted in the finished work of my son, Jesus Christ. I'm with you that much. We have his presence. We have his peace. But we also have his purpose. It comes with his purpose. Uh, Did you hear what Peter said in the assurance of pardon? Peter tells the people of God they're the temple of God, but he doesn't stop there. He says, you are a royal priesthood. That's temple terminology. And then he goes on. He says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As his temple, our purpose is to tell of his greatness and to spread his kingdom. 
We are saved. He is with us for a purpose, to proclaim the kingdom of God that's come in Jesus Christ. We have a story to tell. And we do this in two ways. One is through word, through sharing that good news with others. And secondly, through deed. As we talked about at Maundy Thursday, loving others just as Jesus loved us. We are to be living stones. What does that imply? Living stones. We're continually moving and shifting and conforming to the cornerstone in a better way, little by little. The passage says, listen, that we are being built, right? Present tense, you are being built. That means we're not passively waiting, but we're moving and we're doing and we're involved in what's happening. So my question to you is, how are you involved in the purposes of God? Even the ones that that are being carried out through this church, through this body. If he is with you and you have his presence and you have his peace, then you have his purpose as well. How are you a living stone? And then finally, you have his power. If we have his presence, if we have his peace, if we have his purpose, that means we have been equipped to do his work because we have his power. We put, listen, this is, this is liberating. We put no confidence in our abilities, but in his spirit. Paul said that. I put no confidence in the flesh. His spirit is with me. Because God's spirit dwells in us, we have the power to do what he's called us to do. I mentioned earlier, this means that there's no pressure. Okay? So that means we go out and we do what God has told us and we leave the conclusions to him that will surely come in his time. They're guaranteed to come by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So, listen, if you don't have those things, let me lovingly tell you that you cannot approach God on your own terms without receiving justice. It's the whole driving point of the Bible. But the table before us right here is evidence that he's made a way for you. uh, Where the barriers are removed. That can be yours by faith in Jesus Christ. So I encourage you, if you don't have that, and this is foreign to you, but you like the sound of that, and you're convicted by that, and you feel it even right now, come this morning, uh, receive him by faith. And if you're a Christian, let me just encourage you that he's with you. No matter how messed up your week's been, no matter how off you've been, uh, he is with you, and he can't be any more with you. He doesn't ebb and flow Come and leave us based on us because his with us, being with us doesn't depend on us. We are the temple of God uh, by his spirit. Thank God. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who who works uh, for us. For you did not leave us in our helpless position, um, our helpless state of separation from you. But you've made a way. I know of no other God who, who comes down, who comes down to deliver and rescue uh, for his own glory. But we praise you. We thank you that you've done that uh, through the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. The barriers have been removed. Uh, so, Father, uh, please work in our hearts. Um, draw people to you uh, and, and encourage us in our faith if we have your spirit to be the temple of God to proclaim, to live out his purposes, and to rest because we have his peace. Thank you, uh, Jesus. In your name we pray.
Amen. Well, just a reminder um, to please sign up for A Praying Life, the Gospel and Heart Seminar. Uh, When you leave or on your phone on the way home, uh, please do that and come and join us this coming up weekend. Uh, Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Uh, No one can ascend the hill of the Lord. No one can stand in his holy place without being purified. And that purification is only through Jesus Christ. If your faith is in Jesus, you have access to the Father every day, all week long. Why would we not go to him? If you're in Jesus Christ, I just uh, urge you to go to him uh, this week as he will give you peace. And also, uh, remember, he is with you no matter what happens this week. If you remember that he is with you, that makes all the difference in every situation. He is with us. Uh, So uh, this is that promise as I give you this benediction. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in the peace of God.